0: Like, shall we kick it off? Mm. So my name's Paul.
1: Paul is 47 years old.
0: I originally grew up in Sydney and moved down to Canberra in 2012.
1: With his growing family that needed more space.
0: And Canberra had job opportunities and a better lifestyle for young families.
1: The move brought him here, to this very house where we're having this conversation. Listening to Love Canberra, a show about love, sex, and relationships here in the heart of the nation. I'm Ivana Ho. Eleven years earlier, when Paul was about 36, he met his wife Louise.
0: We met in a course, we did a course on conflict management.
1: They started dating. And when Paul decided to go overseas a couple of months later, after getting a voluntary redundancy, she followed.
0: It was a good trip in terms of tourism and us being together. And, you know, a lot of people say don't ever travel with your friends because, you know, you'll break up. We obviously didn't break up and we had a good time together.
1: But the trip didn't go quite as planned for Paul, who'd hoped to land a job overseas and stay there.
0: So we ended up coming back and lived with her mum for five or six months.
1: Paul found a job and they moved out. After two years, they bought the place they were renting.
0: And then I asked her to marry me. I didn't think about it at all. We were in a cafe and it was just, I looked at her and I said, Louise, will you marry me? I think they asked her to marry me a couple of times. I remember thinking I should get down on bend a knee and we were somewhere and I went to go down a bit and then, you know, she's only a little girl and she'd literally, you know, and I'm a fairly big guy and she literally just picked me up so, so that I, I wouldn't embarrass her in the restaurant. We talked about what that meant. Louise was always much more courageous than me emotionally you know I tend to just sweep everything under the carpet and not want to talk about anything you know and Louise brought up issues around things like kids and that was really important to her and up until that point you know I had never really pictured myself as a as a dad it wasn't something on my list of things to make happen by the age of you know 37 and 5 days For the wedding, I got really cold feet you know oh is this the right thing? am I doing the right thing because I hadn't really thought it through. I just sort of went, you know let's get married I, I want to marry you um, but then all the all the thoughts started coming obviously and I had really cold feet up until up until the day and then once we were married, that was it I was happy, I was content I I had no issues with becoming a dad or having children. We had a great honeymoon, waited a couple of months, and um, I tell people that when you know, Louise stopped taking the pill, I looked at her and she fell pregnant. You know, it, was, it was just that quick.
1: On Halloween in 2009, Paul and Louise got married. As Paul said, Louise fell pregnant quickly, and they learned she was having twins.
0: And then things... Louise started to have a lot of problems. We call it Hotel RPA because we were up there every Sunday. There would be some issue and she was eventually admitted and the doctors were wondering whether to um, have them at... I think we were sort of somewhere between 28 weeks and they were trying to get her to 30 weeks because that would be a much better you know, time for the babies. And there was a lot of blood tests and you know, backwards and forwards. Uh, and finally at 34, she had the cesarean.
1: Their boys were taken to neonatal care and were fine when they were released. As for Louise, she suffered a series of prolonged health issues we won't go into. They took their toll, not just on her, but on the marriage. So how far into the marriage did things start to deteriorate between you and her?
0: Well, there were problems, physically health problems, that Louise went through. And she had to have a lot of support at home, you know, because physically her health was so bad and we had a night nanny and a day nanny. And I guess things started to go a little haywire after, um, you know, Louise came home and she wasn't coping with the fact, like, her illness was just... It would have been tough on anyone without children. So we had support there from both the family and and these day and night nurses, Um, but it was still really tough. And eventually, the Marrickville unit was big with just the two of us and then very small with the four of us and even smaller with nannies and, you know, grandparents and all that sort of stuff. And so we came down here, you know, went round different places. And Louise initially wasn't, didn't like the idea, but then after she'd come down here, she was really keen.
1: So Paul said before that with two children, day and night nurses and family coming in and out their Marrickville unit began to feel small. When they moved to Canberra, they took up in a bigger place, but they also found they had more space because there were fewer people coming in and out. Namely, no more nurses.
0: We rang the... So in Sydney, it was through a group called Sydney In Home Care, and we rang the people here, and they said, look, we just don't have anyone on the books.
1: So how did that impact everything?
0: We ended up having a rotating grandparent support network, so her mum would come and stay with us, and then her dad, and then my mum, and then her mum, and so around it went. I guess that started to go see-saw-ish in two thousand and twelve, uh, and. We went to Relationships Australia and tried to do some mediation and that was okay, but we had a great lady who we both, you know, we went and saw together and then she had to leave and the next lady was like, oh, I think Louise is probably too fragile to do group sessions, so she was just seeing Louise. And so there was nothing there for me.
1: Physically or emotionally fragile?
0: Both, both. Um physically and emotionally, um, you know obviously on a on a roller coaster ride, and then eventually i I just I just found I couldn't take any more and um, and you know I, I got her and and um, she went over to her mum's, and you know we we started the process of of separation.
1: so at this point. I know it sounds like Paul was just a terrible husband because don't marriage vows include being there for your partner through sickness and in health? And for all I know, maybe he wasn't a good husband. But in this case, he mentioned off mic that there were other things going on that led to the deterioration of their relationship. The dissolution of the relationship was something Paul didn't take lightly. On the contrary, its end hit him hard.
0: That really screwed with me, Mm. mentally, Um, because this was obviously someone that I had planned to spend the rest of my life with and and it just became too hard, you know, it just became too hard.
1: At what point though did you realise that you couldn't do it anymore and why?
0: it it was a snap decision and it wasn't a snap decision. You know, uh, a few months earlier, I came home and asked for a trial separation because I felt that I, that a marriage wasn't really a marriage anymore. It just seemed to be a series of, like a, not a boarding house, but it just seemed that everybody, we were just having this house of people that were coming in and out and we weren't having a, a, a relationship ourselves and, and so it just, yeah, it just deteriorated. And, and then uh, one of my boys got, um, uh, had a respiratory thing and was up in Westmead. Her mum was up in Sydney. And, uh, and so she went to Sydney with the boys. And then they, they went into Westmead. And I jumped on a bus as soon as I heard, went to Westmead. And over the couple of days that we were there, we lived at the hospital together. And it was just me, her, and, and our boy and we reconnected, you know, and I asked her please to come back and sort of begged her to, you know, um, if she could come back and, and we give it another go. Um, and that's when we started going to Relationships Australia. There was a period there where it it shouldn't have been a surprise, but the actual act of separation, you know, was a surprise. It just sort of happened. It was like one of these... You know, um, one of these things that just come out of the blue, and and then you know Louise was outside the house, and uh, her mum came, and you know it was it was fairly dramatic, um, and and the first couple of months, first couple of years were were hard. You know, our our relationship had deteriorated to the point where we were. You know, not able to to function even as as sort of um, as parents, and uh, and then because there's no consent orders and all sorts of stuff, there was a lot of there was a few shenanigans that went on, uh, and I guess the only thing that I could say about the divorce in terms of. Um, silver lining is that the boys were about two and a half so there were i feel i don't think louise does but i feel that the boys didn't really know what was going on you know it wasn't a hugely traumatic event for them as opposed to them being five six ten fifteen whenever now that they're older, there's been a dad's house and a mum's house, and that's the way it's always been. And that's the way it was for me. I grew up with my mother, a single parent, and my father left when I was like one, and I never saw him. You know, I got to years five and six, and 50% of the class were going through divorces, and they were getting ripped apart emotionally, you know, and they were given presents by both parents, and, you know, trying to figure out who they should love and who they shouldn't love and really hard stuff and um you know i didn't have any of that and my boys aren't going to have any of that either um it was uh a a tough period but i think in the long run it was it was the best time if there ever is a good time to have a divorce then you know when the children are very young and and You know, not not that they don't question, you know, one of my boys turned around and and said, you know, why aren't you and Mum living together, you know? I had rang Relationships Australia because I wanted to find out if they had any information about how to talk about some of these topics, and he beat me by a week. I was like, I had an appointment the following week, and uh, and their mum handled it really well uh, and sort of said, well, we don't live in the same house, but we both love you very much, you know? And so... Yeah, those questions are obviously going to come up as they get older. I, I was expecting more actually because, you know, the school I go to is a public school and uh, there's a very mixed demographic in the classroom. And so you're going to have some kids that are single-parent kids but have a good relationship with their with both parents. You're going to have some kids that are single-parent kids that, you know, the parents can't talk to each other um, and they have to drop off at police stations. And then you're going to have kids that have great families, um, brothers and sisters, cousins, uh, mum and dad, and Christmas is a wonderful time. Um, and there's only one Christmas, not three. Um, and so there's a huge spectrum. Uh, so, yeah, the the boys were doing okay, but, uh, but they are questioning, sure. you know, some of the things that are going
1: on. So, you separated from your wife in 2013, and um, this triggered what you describe as a midlife crisis?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I fell off the rails. I'd go to work, I told my boss, um, I went to Woden Mental Health and got a psychologist, and um, and you know, I'd go to my team meetings, and then I'd go to the library and sleep for an hour or two. Um, I'd come back, and I could barely do emails, let alone actually. I don't. I don't know how I didn't lose my job, other than my bosses were incredibly supportive, and my team carried carried me. Um, you know, I was doing all sorts of stuff. Uh, I was down at uh, what is it, Sim Simston? Simston, Simston, like Simonston. Simonston, yeah. You know, with the government housing down there, and I was going to get like a, you know, like a um, cargo, um, a cargo container type unit, like just one long thing with a bathroom, um, because I didn't think I was going to have a job. I didn't think I, I thought I was going to lose my job, you know. And so 2013, yeah, very much on the rocks, you know, really going up and down and, you know, every which way but left, well, every tray including left. Uh, And then by 2014, I started to recover and I decided to go out and, but then I started doing silly things you know, um, in terms of the places that I went, the people that I hung out with, the amount that I drank when I was out. Um, And 2014 was like my, you know, man midlife crisis, you know. Um, There's a lot of stereotypical stories about, you know, men in their 40s, you know, going out dating 20-year-olds and stuff. I didn't exactly do that because... To tell you the truth, I wasn't interested in meeting anyone else. You know, after the split, um, I kept my ring. I I wore my ring for two years. I wasn't interested in another woman. Um, I, I didn't want to date. I didn't want to meet anyone. I didn't want another woman in my house. Um... You know, I swore I'd never have another woman in my house, and became—I uh, don't know if bitter is the right word, but certainly—you um, know—I was crushed. And and the idea of having another relationship, where you just sort of start going out and go to restaurants and you know talk lovey-dovey—and yeah, you know, I—I wasn't ready for that. I—I I didn't want that. I—I I was. You know it was one of the one one of the dark periods of my life and um you know my vow that you know i was going to be with this woman you know had been broken i've, I've never been someone that's had a lot of relationships with women like i'm not an experienced relationshiper, <laughs> so i didn't really i hadn't broken up with a lot of women over over my life and so i didn't have the tools to just kind of go oh, okay yeah I can do this I'll go out I'll ring that person you know and a couple of months later I'm with someone else that's not how I you know that's not my life that's not me and so yeah for two years I wasn't interested I wore my ring and yeah just just went on my day-to-day business and and tried to uh, to feel good
1: In terms of keeping your ring on, was that sort of a signal to other people that you were taken and that, you know, so then that would... Uh, Absolutely. ...keep you from having to... Not that, some- I
0: mean, it's not like I get women throwing themselves at me, so it's not like it was ever going to be a problem. But I didn't feel divorced. I felt separated, um, estranged, but I, I didn't really feel divorced, you know, and... Um, you know, I kept the ring on, maybe maybe in some corner of my mind in the hope that perhaps, you know, that I could get together with, you know, my ex partner. Maybe that was something about that. I just didn't want to take it off. I just you know, I guess I didn't want to admit that the the seven years, you know, the whole thing had just fallen in a heap and that was the end of it.
1: So you mentioned that during that two-year period when you kind of went off the rails a bit you were going to places that you wouldn't normally go to and hanging out with people who were perhaps not very good people
0: yeah yeah that's true and um i even went to the to the extent where um you know i i became friends with this guy um called john and he was also down on his luck and I invited him in back and I put him in the spare room and he stayed here for six months. And um, I don't know what I was thinking, but uh, I knew... I mean, he's, he was dodgy, but I was going out and drinking and, and smoking. I took up smoking in 2014, so another silly thing. You know, that, that was... You know, and I, I used the excuse that work was off the hook, but I don't know whether it was just... Whether it was work off the hook or me just acting out. Um, And so, you know, John was here and he was like a mate and we'd go to the pub and, you know, we'd get drunk together and so he lived with us and he did nothing. You know, he didn't look for a job. He didn't, you know, he was scabbing off, you know, my generosity. And so those sort of things, you know, where you look back and you go, why did I do that? How could I make those sort of decisions?
1: Where else did you go apart from the pub?
0: Well, I went. We we spent some time over at Fishwick, some of the places there, and uh, I would stay out all night. I would I would um, find places that stayed open till five in the morning, go from pub to pub and place to place, and get home at six thirty. And that was I mean you know over forty, you can't do that. It's not like I was in my thirties or my twenties, and I would spend the weekend in bed. You know, I'd go out all night on Friday night or Saturday night, and then Saturday, Sunday or Sunday, I would just be in bed and not do anything. It was a silly time. I'd go out every fortnight because we ended up having the boys, not week on, week off, it, was, it wasn't it was quite like that, but when I didn't have the boys, I would go out and just waste the weekend, you know. And then I grew out of it in two thousand and fifteen. It became boring. Like the whole scene became quite boring. Just started staying at home and and John left. He just left. Period. And apparently he was gonna get married to some Asian girl over in I don't know if it was Singapore or somewhere else, but you know, he was on the on, on his computer all the time to, to this girl overseas. And I've never seen him again, Uh, and it doesn't, that doesn't worry me at all.
1: (laughs) So are you, are you open now to having another relationship?
0: I think so, it was, uh, so during my crazy time I met a girl, woman, who wanted to be with me and I, I said to her, look I'm not looking for that, I don't want that. I'm happy to, you know, go to these sorts of things I'm happy to do with you and these sorts of things I'm not happy to do. And then we had, I had this crazy weekend where she came, she she wasn't Canberra, but she came down and, and some of the friends that she had in Canberra came and we all got very drunk that weekend and um, one of the women that were there, you know, I got on with really well she was funny and attractive and then i went and saw her a couple of months after and when i came home i woke up the next day and my ring had fallen off i know it sounds silly it's like whether you believe in signs or not it felt okay not having it on and so i put it in the drawer and that and i stopped wearing my ring and i guess then i was starting to become open to having at least companionship, you know, not, maybe not like a heavy duty relationship. And when you have children and you're divorced um, and it's week on week off or whatever the, the situation is, you don't have a huge amount of time for those sort of heavy duty relationships anymore. You only get to meet someone, you know, you meet someone somewhere and it takes like three weeks before your first date. And then it might be another three weeks before your second so yeah i was up for companionship i guess but i wasn't up for you know the whole holding hands and and staring it into each other's eyes and you know it it had to be a bit more practical than that and so i wouldn't say i went looking and i'm still not looking and i i guess i never really have as a person so yeah it's it would be nice to have that again but I don't think there is space to have a full-on second marriage for a few years at least until the boys are older or more independent and it doesn't take all your energy
1: so your boys are now six years old
0: yep yeah and they're, doing they're... great
1: <laughs> and um, they're identical twins
0: yep yeah. But,
1: but they're very different people.
0: Oh, they are. There's, there's three of them. You know, there's Jeremy, there's Alex, and there's Jeremy and Alex. Uh, and they only separated this year in school. Uh, and one of them handled it okay. The other had some difficulty settling in. And at the end of the day, the strongest bond they have is still with each other. Um, I think that's changing. Like there's been a sort of a change over the last couple of months. But up until, you know, this year, they had been together all the time, always. And so, yes, they love dad and yes, they love mum and their grandparents. But they would never be more than a metre and a half away from each other, even if they're fighting, even if they don't get on. They're still like you take them to the park. I can remember taking them to park and they'd fight within one at one art, and like you have the whole park, you can go that way, and you can go the other way, but they didn't want to. that's a, I guess a special bond that twins have, and the relationship they have with each other is very much their own. It's not something that we as mum and dad can interfere with too much um And there's nothing you can do except be there for them. Though I must admit, we we did work at relationships with both of the boys because when we were together, we would just end up in a sort of formation where the same boy was always with me and the other boy was always with Who was always with you? Well, initially Jeremy um, and and Alex was always with his his mum. And then, you know, when we separated, it was actually it was kind of in in terms of balancing the relationships up it was a good opportunity to do that so you know i worked and and spent time with alex and louise spent time with jeremy and it's not that we have favorites and it's not that they have favorites you know they both love us we both love them but it's very very natural to pair up with someone there is no sort of love or, or or um the need for someone isn't balanced, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's not, it's not a bad thing. It's just, that's the way it was and, and the boys grew up.
1: Shortly after the move to Canberra in 2012, the twins were diagnosed with ASD, Autism Spectrum Disorder.
0: And Louise was the one that picked up on it, like, Uh, I didn't realise that they needed to know a certain number of words or what their stage of development was. You know, I just sort of put it down to them being premature and boys and twins and, you know, it'll all work out in the wash. Louise was much more proactive and, you know, I said, oh, look, I'm not sure that they are. All that there is a problem, but if you want to do something to check it out, I'm, you know, I'm 100% behind you. I'll be at the meetings or the, the appointments and back you up on it and see what happens. And, and sure enough, you know, they did the auditory testing and then they saw the paediatrician and then ended up at therapy ACT and in early intervention, and it was only this year that they were actually diagnosed. It was like a long time coming so we both knew that that was on the cards and that I mean even though we knew that that was going to happen it was still a bad day and I say that not because being autistic is a bad thing I was I, I say that because being labeled is a bad thing you know and once you're labeled as being on ASD you've got that for life You know it doesn't matter if you're 35 and running Apple with three kids and a relationship you know in a house and all the kitten koodle you never take that label away and that's a sad thing you know the sad thing is not the autism because they're doing fine really they're doing great the sad thing is that that label not everybody understands what that means
1: what sorts of behaviors were they exhibiting that led Louise to suspect um, words, something was up enough?
0: so so not a lot of words yeah. um so there were a lot of pointing so lots of pointing and uh a very limited vocabulary and their social skills obviously were not very good because their social world had been each other and they would always play together at Tuggerong Daycare. When they first came in, they didn't hardly talk to anyone, you know. Um, and, you know, the the daycare centre was fantastic for them, and the, the staff there were amazing, you know, and they really bloomed. They bloomed, and but even so, things like um, imaginative play wasn't high on the list uh, because th- there was each other, you know, and. It's a lot more fun to play hide-and-seek than it is to sit down with some and Sam or whatever and pretend to be Feynman Sam, you know. Um, but they they used to call it Asperger's, so you'd have, like, high-functioning autism would be fall into the category Asperger's, but they've done away with that word. It's It's now just ASD. And that is so true because there are some days where you look at them... And you think there's nothing wrong with them; they're doing great, you know. And there are other days where you think, "Oh my God, that's going to be a real problem." Um, and so, yeah, it really is a, a spectrum, and and it's not just you're in that space; you move up and down, you know. And the and the children move up and down on it.
1: So they're identical twins, but their ASD doesn't really um, manifest in each of them in the same way.
0: Oh, absolutely not. People get surprised that um, one of them was diagnosed with ASD. You know, because he was he was fitting into school really well, and, and I wasn't. Like it is a spectrum, and there are different needs. Um, one of them are, is behind on the three R's: so reading, writing, arithmetic. Um, you know, struggling with some of his emotions, but very much independent, very much himself. And the other one is kind of still finding himself, you know, still finding what it means to be and and to be independent and has more anxiety. And some of those are harder to deal with. I mean, I've I've been wanting a child psychologist for a long time, not so much just for the kids, but also for me, because there are situations where things just go like that, just boom. And I used to find it hilarious when people say, the children don't come with a manual and i'm like well we've been having children for 6 billion years so you know someone's got to have written a book about it more than once but it's not that it's it's that your child doesn't come with a manual it's not it's not a general thing yes that you know you can read a book on how to feed your kid but it's that your child and their personality and their mind and their emotions don't come with a manual you don't know what's going to happen you know, in five minutes. And that's part of their diagnosis of being ASD is that their emotions are difficult for them to deal with. And so I wanted a child psychologist to help with that. Um, But again, very difficult uh, to find in in Canberra.
1: So you say that their emotions are difficult for them to deal with. How can you tell that? How, How do they show that? Oh,
0: boy. Um... You know, one of them wants whatever the other one has. So if one of them has a blue car, he wants a blue car. And then if one of them picks up the green car, he wants the green car. There's that sort of inability to just detach and do your own thing.
1: Is that a twin thing or is that an ASD thing, though?
0: I think it's a twin thing. But the problem is that the ASD aspect of it is exacerbated. You know, I was saying earlier there's three personalities. You know, there's the boys individually and the boys together. And if you separate them, it's a lot easier to get them to do, you know, just reading or writing or, or just to be calm. When they're together, they tend to press each other's buttons. You know, and if one's settling, the other one's not brings the other one up and the other one goes you know and that aspect of it um, the autistic inability to relate to other people or recognise the social cues that a lot of people recognise means that it becomes really hard so there is that both the twin aspect and and the ASD aspect
1: do they get along okay with their classmates?
0: Uh, look one does the other is Struggling, He goes through aggressive periods. I personally think that it's a frustration and that the fact that he's not able to grasp the work as quickly as the other students means that he will throw a tantrum. That's my view. It may not be what the teachers think, but my view is that throwing that tantrum means that the attention is moved away from whatever activity... He was supposed to be doing into calming him down, and then the activity is forgotten and the day moves on. So, in that sense, one of them is struggling because you know the fact that he's behind in the three R's, and the, also the, um, the emotions and feelings of doing different work to other children, of being slightly behind, and those types of feelings are difficult to deal with at the best of times and must also be a lot harder when you're on the ASD spectrum as well. Um, So yeah, they don't both cope in school at the same level. The thing is that I believe that it's going to take a few years, but I believe they will catch up and feel normal. ...and not have to have this label of ASD impacting other people's perception of them. Because it's still a stigma. At some point in their playground, you know, as they grew up in recess or lunch... ...and some boy would find out about it and start shouting at them and putting them down because of it... ...we haven't really had the conversation about being on ASD or what ASD means probably just hasn't come up but if they can ask the question then they deserve an answer on what that sort of means for them and and also to let them know that it's probably not something they want to tell everybody or their mates at school and it's sad that I have to do that but I I think that um, that society and it's not kind it's not not, um, accepting can be really cruel So I want to prepare them for all the things that could possibly happen in school.
1: I understand that you've enrolled them into um, tilopia and that you'd like them to learn French. Oh,
0: look, that's, look, that was one of the things that every parent has fantasies about their children, right? And I'm no different. And my fantasy was... In Canberra, there's a unique opportunity um, in that there are schools that do the International Baccalaureate, and there are bilingual schools, and there are also bilingual schools that do bilingual, or the French version of the International Baccalaureate. And I thought that would be so cool for my children to do. Right? It would be. Australia generally is fairly myopic and, and closed down in sort of an island mentality. But being bilingual is a a fact of life for most of the world's population because they have borders with lots of other people. And I've been to Europe, I've travelled, and and I know the value of having a second language. And, yeah, it was one of those things that you fantasise about, your kid learning French, doing the international baccalaureate and then, you know, heading off into whatever oyster that is out there for them. As in, the world is your oyster. And I rang up Tilopia. I, I, I rang up um, quite a few places, uh, the Alliance, Alliance de France or something, or other, the French school. And look, the feedback was that if they're struggling with their speech, focus on the one language until they've mastered that and then take it from there. And uh, I mean, one of them's doing Italian at school. I found an Italian cassette so we can learn Italian, but in truth, and this is another dad fantasy, you know, I tell people that I want my kids to learn three languages. I want them to learn English, Chinese and Objective C because I think China is the 21st century power and I think coding and learning how to program is the 21st century skill. Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to push to have them in Chinese bilingual classes at age seven. You know, So you, you do have to look at your own child and um, think what is best for him or her, um, not what is best for dad.
1: So what are your hopes for them for the future, ASD or no ASD? Um,
0: I mean, I've enrolled them in Canberra Grammar. It's not like I, I don't have the dreams of having them go to really good schools and having all the opportunities that the world can offer. And it's really about that. It's really about providing the education. And to me, you know, I, I do a lot of education podcasts and stuff. And people keep saying, oh, what is education? What is this thing that we call education? And to me, it's really simple it's choice. Um, I remember when I tried to give up cigarettes, I went to the Mangrove Mountain. And, um, you know, there was a lady there saying, oh, I don't, I think the education system's terrible. And, you know, I said, yeah, look, it might be. And and homeschooling might be an option for some people or not doing just learning as you want to learn might be an option for some people, and that's great. But I said, I want my child to be able to make the decision about whether he wants to be CEO of Apple or whether he wants to become a Buddhist and, and sit up in Mangrove Mountain and chant. I don't mind what he does. It doesn't worry me as long as he's healthy and he's happy um and that's what he wants to do but i want to give him the choice to decide that if he wants to be a pilot then i want to give him the choice to be able to make that decision and make it a reality um so my hopes and dreams for them are are simply that that i give them enough guidance and give them the opportunities to choose the life they want to lead
1: You've been listening to Love Canberra. Do get in touch to let me know what you thought of this episode. If you like the show, please take a moment to rate it in iTunes or tell a friend. As an indie podcast, every listener counts. You can find me on Twitter at LoveCBRPodcast and by email at LoveCanberraPodcast. At gmail.com As always, the theme music is by Proleteur. Details of the interstitial music are in the show notes. That's it for now. Thanks for listening.